Hi, once again, listeners. This is Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. We are a team of software engineering experts led by legendary author Steve McConnell. Here, we believe every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value. In these episodes, we talk with one of our consultants, exploring one of the different types of engagements. We describe the issues those engagements were designed to address and how we solve them. And today, we're picking back up with our second in a series of three podcasts that will delve into the world of Kanban, a topic that's pretty popular, apparently, from the listener feedback we've received. We're joined in the virtual studio Ether once again by Jenny Stewart, Constructs' VP of Consulting and a frequent Kanban instructor, consultant, and coach. And I welcome you back to the microphone, Jenny. Hi, Mark. Nice to be here. Awesome. So today's episode is going to focus on the nuts and bolts of setting up and operating Kanban systems, as well as some discussion on metrics associated with tracking progress. Um, These elements have come up in many of our client conversations that teams have in organizing and running their Kanbans. And so as a a quick framing note, let's define Kanban um, for our purposes here as a concept related to lean and just-in-time production, where it's used as a scheduling system that tells you what to produce, when to produce it, and how much to produce. And so in software, we're really talking about flow and throughput, right, Jenny? Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Okay, cool. So in the first episode of the series, we talked more in the in the negative sense, in the misconception sense, about some of the mechanics of setting up a Kanban system. So I thought today what we would do is recurse a bit and, and talk about those mechanics in a proper context of what to do correctly here uh, first off. So at the very beginning, the very baseline, let's talk about work item types. In other words, what your team actually delivers. So getting that clearly described is super important, right? It is. And surprisingly, this is often the hardest thing for teams to think about and, and figure out. And well, that's, that, that's surprising to me because you think like the what would be the you know, would be the obvious one. Yeah, it surprised me too. When I first started working with Kanban teams, I always thought the workflow would be the hard thing to figure out. That's actually the simplest thing. The hard thing is to really step back from your work and think about your work item types. So what would be some examples of work item types like for for software teams in different contexts? Sure. Um, If you were, say, a Scrum team and we were Kanbaning you, maybe doing some Scrum Bon, I would think of that team as having a the product backlog items as being their work item type. In that okay. product backlog, they might have a variety of things from stories to defects to technical debt, but they have one requester, the product owner, and one location that it comes from. So I would think about them as having that as their primary work item type or maybe their only work item type. Okay. Well, how about um, other other areas of that we might connect with, like maybe like IT groups? What, what Would there be a difference with those kinds of organizations in terms of what they have? Yeah, absolutely. A um, couple examples there. One, I worked with a group who was doing kind of what they called project work. These were major initiatives that would often take them months to kind of complete. They were adding big new infrastructural elements into their ecosystem. And then they also had what they called keep the lights on work, which was just small incremental things to what you might think of there, keep that system running. So that team actually had two work item types, which we mocked up as two swim lanes in their Kanban board. Okay. 
Yeah, I could see that happening. Um, you know, and we'll get into this as we as we talk further about the, the specific nature of IT work and sometimes uh, the notion of swim lanes. And I think we'll touch on that as we go. Yep. So, so you have. You have your work item types, right? Well, one you know, you, one more thing on that that I think is really okay. important, which Go for is it. the way to think about it is to kind of step back for a second and ask yourself who your stakeholders are. So who asks you for things and who do you deliver those things to? So for our Scrum team, obviously, we're going to think about our product owner. Um, for that infrastructure team, they're probably thinking about there's probably a project request queue somewhere that people make those for, or the organization prioritizes the project. But the keep the lights on work might be prioritized by the leader of that particular team. So thinking about just who asks us for things and what kinds of things do we end up delivering to them is the big way to step away from. I think a lot of people, when they think work item types, start thinking about what they do to the work, <laughs> which is really the workflow. And yeah, so, I can see that. Yeah. And so they get really thinking about what they're doing day to day. But if you instead step back and think about uh, stakeholders and receivers, that will get you much closer to your work item types. I like that. That's a good way to really think about it. And, you know, I think the stakeholder thing, stepping back and thinking stakeholders, um, that, that probably makes people think a little bit outside the box once in a while and say, you know, we, we're, we're so, we got our noses down on what we're doing work-wise, but what actually are we delivering, right? So I think that's good. So um, the next thing I wanted to talk about is, uh, is, is um, defining the workflow in terms of the steps that the work items go through and the stages you have to you have defined for that. So give us an example of that as a way for us to kind of visualize what that means. So here, this is actually the easy part. Once you've identified those work <laughs> item types and you know, for example, maybe you're a team who is doing enhancements, right? You're doing small incremental enhancements on an existing system. You've got a big pipeline that comes in that gets prioritized by a person you simply ask, okay, when the work arrives, what's the first thing that happens? <laughs> and they might okay. say, well, it enters the queue, it gets prioritized, that's done by Joe, our engineering manager. Okay, that's a backlog. Uh, and then what happens? Well, we pull the piece in, we look at it, we make sure we understand the need, maybe they put some acceptance criteria around it. Oh, that's an analyst, analysis kind of work. Uh, yeah, but we call it investigation. Okay, so that's an investigate step. And then what happens? Well, and then we build it and we test it. Okay, that sounds like an implementation step. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's implementation. And then what happens? Well, we hand it over to our customers and they validate it. Uh, and then we're done. Okay, so you have a validation step and then you're done. And so their workflow would be, uh, investigation, implementation, validation. Okay. And and those names are are standard names. Do you have are you uh, the team can call them what they want to call them? What what's your philosophy on that? Yeah, I think the teams should call them what they want to call them with one caveat. If I'm working with an organization and we're standing up or refining the implementation of a ton of teams, I will try and standardize the naming. 
so that if everybody is doing kind of similar things, one team calls it analyze, another team calls it analyzing, and another team calls it investigation, I'm going to try and get us to align on a common name. So if stakeholders come and look at the diversity of boards, they won't just get confused by the terminology. Um, that makes sense. I won't, I won't insist or tell them what the name should be, but I'll ask them to get together and agree on a name and let me know what they're going to call each stage. That makes sense. And then, and, and, uh, I mean, maybe this isn't a, a leak into the third podcast we're talking about, but, but if you're going to roll this up, if you have many teams doing this and rolling them up into a higher level, then having some, some level of standardization at the lower level probably helps to do that. It it certainly does not hurt. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so now you have the items defined, the flow defined, but I I suppose there needs to be some kind of agreement on definitions of the steps like the, so the, the, we, you call them work state policies, meaning things like what defines something in a certain state as being done, right? Yeah. So here I'll usually think about two things. The first is going through each of those columns or stages in our Kanban board and talking about what the exit criteria are. So what does it mean to call the work done in the analysis step, done in the investigation step, done in the implementation or building step, Uh, and getting people here, we're going to be talking on the early parts of the boards. This would be very similar to like a scrum style definition of ready We've done mm-hmm. the analysis. We understand it. Um, maybe we, if our story pointing, we've story pointed it and made sure it's at least a reasonable work size. We have any design information we need. We understand the need. Uh, in implementation, we're going to be talking about things usually like it's checked in, it's been code reviewed, we've run static code analysis tools on it. Those are the kind of things that I would expect in our exit criteria across the board. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, there, there's also things like board-level policies as well, right? Yeah. Some, some more simple stuff, mechanical stuff. Yeah, this can be things. This is things that don't apply to any one stage in the Kanban system, but apply holistically. It might be logistical things like what time of day the team holds its daily Kanban, or it may just be kind of working policies that are the norms of the team, very akin to like Scrum's working agreements, Uh, For example, I had one team that got a lot of very small requests for work, things that were like, pick up the phone and answer a simple question. And they were really concerned about Kanban because they thought they were going to have to put a, a Kanban ticket in for every single thing they did and felt like if they were doing these two, three, four minute tasks, they'd be having way more overhead than they'd actually be doing. (laughs) Um, And so we sat down with the team and with the manager and basically came to agreement on what would be the threshold for adding work into their board, for adding a ticket to the board, right? You obviously, if you're going to spend three or four hours on it, that probably makes sense. So we came to an alignment and agreement that made sense for the team and made sense for the manager of the team of saying that basically if something took more than 30 minutes, a ticket got created. Okay. That makes sense. Chris, there's devil's advocate here where if you have a number of those that creep up and you, you ask different staff members on the team, you know, oh, it only takes me 10 minutes to deal with it. I don't want to enter, enter in the board. And, and they have 10 a week. Then you've nibbled away at some of your bandwidth with that, right? Yeah, you have. You have. Uh, and, 
you know, when you can do things like on a daily or weekly basis, ask people to sort of say what amount of their work was spent doing this. Uh, again, I would be kind of stepping back and saying, what do we need to understand about this team and what's the easiest way to understand it? Um, you know, having them do a, a high overhead approach to understanding a problem versus a low overhead approach. I'm always going to take the low overhead approach. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. I, I just, I recall a conversation I had with one of our other technical service providers um, when he was asked to kind of do a little bit of coaching on a, on their Kanban system. And I remember him saying that there was an awful lot of work that was not exposed uh, that was in process that, that, that once they became honest with themselves about these little 10 minute tasks, these little five minute tasks, they ended up being pretty significant amount of their time. And so I think that's the, I think that's in alignment with what you're saying is you want to make sure you understand what that limit is yep. in terms of simple, quick things to do. So, well, and that kind of thing also, it makes sense to, to check in on, right? We thought it was this way, but is it really Oops. this way? Are these really five minute tasks or are these tasks where it's five minutes to look at the email and an hour to actually do the work? And that really should be a ticket on the board. Yeah. I could see that becoming a comedy act in a team. Yeah. Yeah. That was another one of those five minute jobs. It took me four hours. Right? <laughs> well, that so, was basically what they said, right? They said, yeah, you know, sure. if it really does only take us five or 10 minutes, let's make sure that we just do it and get it done. But the second right. it starts to, creep over right and they're like you know if it, if it's not done in 30 minutes or less preferably less then we know this is morphing into something that's big enough we want it to be on our board so that it's not invisible work good advice so the last thing on the setup side that i wanted to talk about was this and we just alluded to it shortly here is that the work and process limits or whip limits meaning how many of the items are allowed to be at each stage of the workflow? Why don't we get into that? That's a good one. Sure. There's um, two ways that I coach teams to uh, put in place whip limits. One that is my absolute favorite and one that is my back pocket. I use it if I have to. Okay. So my, I use it if I have to back pocket option is what's considered individual whip limiting which just means that as a person whose work is on the board, I can only do so many things at one time. Typically people will say one thing or two things. So I have two tokens, Mark, you have two tokens. Um, if both of my tokens are on the board and I'm doing that, I need to get something done before I put my token on a new piece of work. Okay. And this I typically use when there's a team who really can't help each other out. So I was working with a team to set up their Kanban system and they were supplying the, the tooling infrastructure to four large product development groups. So this was the group who set up Jira and Rally and the other tools needed for the software development process. Gotcha. And they had the one person who knew Jira and they were the only person who knew Jira and the one person who knew Rally and they were the only person who knew Rally. So that case, because there's so little ability to help each other out, I used individual whip limiting. Um, now, they do have an issue, right? What if the person who knows Jira leaves? <laughs> Oops. So that's, yeah. we also had some conversations about knowledge transfer and mentoring and working together so that there was at least a person and a backup person in every area. So they weren't quite so dependent. So eventually I told that team, I want you to move to 
more full, robust whip limiting once you can work together more. That makes sense. I mean, what was their response? Was that was that a, a well received guidance? Yeah, they were actually interested in uh, learning things outside of their core areas. They thought that would be beneficial. And like cool. any skill building opportunity, right? I can't go tell somebody they have to learn something. I'm going to be more like, well, it'd be good to do skill building. How about we go around, look at all the diversity of the work you're doing and have people talk about what they'd be most interested in learning and have us talk about what would be most useful to have a backup for and see where we have overlap and see where we have holes. No, oh, that's, that's a terrific response. Um, so in terms of of other things you would might you might think about in terms of the mechanics of a of a kanban system um well, and you talked a little bit about this earlier let's right? let's make sure we talk about the real oh your favorite learning. one <laughs> oh see see i got i got so enamored in your second path that it was like ah you know that's okay so go for it so sorry what cut I, you off <laughs> be aggressive shut me down what i really <laughs> want people to do is set robust whip limits where there's a whip limit at each stage of the board. And so in our little example of our investigation, uh, implementation and validation board, we have, say we have a a team of six. Um, Usually what I will find is we will start talking about, well, optimal whip limiting would be kind of one per person. Um, but that's often so far away from where they are today. Sometimes we'll kind of talk about and say, well, it would be great. We have six people, six would be wonderful, but we've got 36 things on our board today. It's unrealistic, (laughs) right? And so that just feels like it's just too much of a shift. And I'll often start teams out at two X per team member. Okay. So they now have 12 whip limits to place on the columns as they deem relevant. So now we're going to be asking questions like, what percentage of your time do you spend doing your investigation? What percentage do you spend doing the implementation? And what percentage do you spend doing the validation? And placing the whip limits where we think makes the most sense. Um, The other thing about setting them slightly high is one, they'll see a huge productivity improvement just by getting um, from 36 to 12. (laughs) That's going to really limit the whip that they're working on so that things start moving through the system much more quickly. Uh, It'll give them the opportunity to kind of test those whip limits and say, is that right? Should we have a few more in the investigation to make sure that's feeding the implementation stage so that we're flowing well enough? Or do we have maybe too much there and stuff is starting to sort of feel like it's piling up there and we can't consume it fast enough? So it allows them to adjust them. And then once they've gotten that steady state, When we start talking about metrics, we'll also start talking about kind of tuning the whip limits, reducing them to, and then seeing what happens in the metric data that we have. And we should see better flow as we get closer to -to one-to-one. Yeah, I can see why you might say that's your preferred system. It just sounds like a much better way to start, right? It also, if you think about individual whip limiting, what it's really doing is making sure that you and I aren't overburdened. As individuals, we're not trying to do five things at once and therefore not getting anything done. But it doesn't help us think about the flow through the system 
and what we need to do to it as a team to optimize the flow of work from when we start it to when we deliver it. So robust WIP limiting gives you that sense of you're thinking more about it's not about me personally being optimally busy. It's about us together coherently working as a team to optimize our value flow. And that's a good thing, the value flow. We'll come back to that. Let's, let's, uh, let's bookmark that one for now. Um, so another thing that, you, that we, you might think about when you think about WIP limits and you think about, particularly with stakeholders, where stakeholders, you know, you think about it visually of those, of those folks pouring, pouring requests into the system and the system consuming them, right? At some point in time, uh, one of those stakeholders might say, you know what? Drop everything. You need to work on this now, right? So never happens. Never happens. Never <laughs> happens. No. And 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 think like sometimes it could be all the things we want you to do now. But but you know, from the standpoint of the mechanics of a Kanban system, another element that you have talked about that's pretty important is this idea of classes of service. So why don't you kind of expand that one a little bit, and we'll, we can get into that. So this is the exactly what you were talking about. Is some work more urgent than other work? Do you ever have, say, the equivalent to the ambulance on the freeway where everything else needs to slow down to clear a path to let that one piece of work move through your system much more quickly? Now, the first thing I will tell people is you always have an input queue or a product backlog or a backlog, and you can order that. So if that's enough and just changing the order in the backlog gives you everything you need in terms of being able to work on the most important things, you don't need a class of service. You have a ordered backlog and you're using standard class of service in your system. It's literally when you start having things like, we have a hair on fire emergency, we need to stop doing what we're doing now and shift immediately. That's an expedite class of service. Um, and probably the most common class of service that I will see. But I bet you can guess what the risks of putting an expedite class of service into your system are. Everybody likes that lane. Yeah. <laughs> I, get, I get my stuff done quicker. Yep. I want to use that <laughs> lane. And if you expedite everything, yeah, you expedite nothing. Exactly. So when I establish um, classes of services, one of the things we also said is a policy. So this is part of your board policies for what is allowed to enter the expedite class of service. Um, I had one team who said it's because it's a customer priority one, severity one, uh, a service level agreement defect. So they had certain customers where they actually had policies about response times for critical defects. And so if those showed up, those had to be expedited because of that SLA that they had with the customer. But the funny thing about that team, it was it's an S1 P1 customer SLA defect or Joe such and such tells us we have to do it was actually their expedite policy because they would have a person in the organization who would come and say, do this. And I said, well, if they say do this, do you have to? And they said, yes. I said, okay, that's part of your policy. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> um, but it's it's important to be thoughtful about this because I had a team once. They worked, uh, they provided software and systems and services for a, a hospital, and they had been doing this for years, and everybody knew who they were. So if somebody wanted something, they would just phone a friend and ask right. him for something. 
And so we instead put an expedite lane in and together as a group, we said, well, the policy to get into the expedite lane is that you have to get Joe squared to agree. And the the team had two bosses, Joe and Joe. (laughs) Uh, And this sounds like it's really bureaucratic, but they were small. They sat next to each other. This was super easy. Uh, And so to get into the expedite lane, both of the Joes had to say that was more important work than what the team was working on now. Otherwise, it just went into the backlog to get ordered in with the other work. And they went from expediting two or three things a week to expediting one thing a month. Wow. That's that's a progress. Yeah. They felt like they could be a lot more focused. They weren't jumping. They were jumping when they needed to, but they weren't jumping just because somebody had called and said, I want you to jump. Instead, they would say, well, should we jump? <laughs> and, and sometimes the answer was yes, but often the answer was no, that just needs to go high up into our backlog so that we work on it soon. Yeah. I mean, the, the emergency context here, I think, is you keep it in mind is, is um, just because the fire alarm is there, it doesn't mean you need to pull it every day. Right. right. You, there, there's things you can do to kind of think about how does this work. And, and you know, it's another policy idea, right? I mean, uh, maybe this is a good time to define um service level agreements right it's a, it's we haven't really talked about that in any detail i think we talked about it in the counter sense in the in the first podcast but in this case it ends up being a commitment between the services provided meaning the combine team and what they're working on and, and usually the business right the client so what um it's an expectation i guess and how long will something take um and so how do you model that on a board what does it look like um how do you how do you structure something like that when you talk about these things So you'll want to get some data underneath your feet before you really start setting your service level agreement. Um, And when we get into the metrics, we'll start talking about gathering cycle time and using the cycle time data that we gather to have a, a pretty good sense for what our flow through our system looks like so that we can set an SLA. And usually those will be set uh, along the lines of, Uh, Once we start working on an item to once you get it, our SLA is that it is, say, 15 days, 85% of the time. And so that means the vast majority of the time people will get it in 10 days or less, um, and it'll be the exception. There'll be some significant reason that we can probably talk to and explain pretty rationally for the 15% that are going to take longer. Okay. So when you do these things, right, you – they have to be evident somehow on your visuals and your boards, right? What do, what do you do to model that? How do you how do you set that in play? If you're say for example, you know someone's going to use it, an expedite lane, is that that's an explicit thing on your board that everybody can see, and that's and that should be set up with an SLA with the with the organization at some point to tell just to say people what this is when this gets to this lane. You can't do this unless unless we've agreed on it ahead of time. Yeah, I think there's a couple things here. Uh, one is what the board model looks like. So the most common way to do this is if you just have standard class of service and expedite is you'd have two swim lanes. One swim lane would be for your work and the next swim lane would be for the expedite lane, and you'd have set a policy that explicitly says, here's what needs to happen for you to be able to be in the expedite lane 
Uh, plus, most people will also say, hey, we only expedite one thing at a time. <laughs> so yeah. there'll be a limit on how many things can be in the expedite lane. And then if we're if we have the data underneath us, then we would also have posted up near our board or uh, now that we don't have a lot of physical boards because we're all virtual nowadays uh, in some team area we would have our data about what our cycle times, what our SLAs look like for those two lanes. So obviously the cycle time data and the SLA for the expedite lane, one would expect to be shorter than the standard class of service. Uh, in fact, if you'd had a team who only had a standard class of service, and then you put it in an expedite lane, you would actually see the SLA on the standard class of service go up. It would start to take longer if they were expediting much. That makes sense. I mean, I mean, are, are there are there other approaches that people use to 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 delineate these things? The only other one, and I don't see it very often, is that people can use colored cards for different classes of service. And so there, you'd have it all on one board, and you'd have say yellow would be your standard class of service, and if you use colors, generally. The expedite is silver. It's the silver bullet that gets to run through the system more quickly. And then you're going to limit how many silver tickets can be on your board at any one moment in time. That makes sense. And it's, it's hard to know that ahead of time, right? You sort of want, you need to run some stuff, look at it, make some, just, just observe it and maybe make it adjustments as you go. Yeah, yeah. Although I will say, I almost always say we really should only be expediting one thing at a time. So if another expedite item shows up, um, we are going to want to get that first one finished before we start the next one. So you can certainly like everything in Kanban. You can explain to me a rational reason why that wouldn't make sense. And if I buy it, that will set it up that way. But I do want to A, really limit how many things can use that lane <laughs> and B, limit how many things we can be doing concurrently, right? Because again, if we say right. you can have an unlimited number of things in expedite, it's eventually basically going to become your standard class of service because everybody's going to want to go through that lane. Right. That makes sense. Or get their silver so card. In in the perfect world, we're, we're talking about flow and your visualization. Everything's moving. Everything's fine. But, you know, in reality, in, when you run these things, you get an item that ends up getting blocked, right? Something happens. And so what approaches do you recommend to handle blocked items when they when they do appear? So I have, I think of this as sort of descending order of, of desired implementation. So my first approach, well, A, we need to talk about how are we going to make it visible on the board? The one approach I do not like is having a blocked column because you okay. lose your understanding of where the work was when it got blocked. Makes sense. And so a really common approach, a lot of tools will let you do this, is that you can turn the card red uh, on the board. So you have a blocked status that you put the card in. The card now takes on a red color. Um, and my favorite thing is that anything that is blocked counts against whip limits because okay. that really motivates and incentivizes us to unblock items really quickly. Um, I have a lot of teams who are new to Kanban where when I suggest that, they get this look. <laughs> and that makes me go, okay, they're not comfortable with that yet. Uh, let's go to approach number two. <laughs> approach number two is 
okay, it seems like you're uncomfortable counting those against your WIP limits, but how about we limit the number of things that you can block on the board? So you can almost think about this as like, you've got a set of red magnets and how many red magnets can you use before you should stop blocking work and start unblocking work, right? Can you block 50 things in your board? That's probably completely insane. Only it blocking is. one thing. Okay. Maybe that's not enough. Usually we can, we'll get teams to say something like, well, you know, if we have more than three things blocked or four things blocked or five things blocked, you know, we really ought to stop blocking and start unblocking. So getting them to the blocks no longer count against whip, but at a certain point you just ran out of red tokens. You don't get to block anything else. And this, again, is a really good thing to be a part of your system policy. How do we handle blockers? Okay. I mean, you mentioned, you alluded to it a little bit, the fact that, that you know, the team might get upset when something counts against their whip, right? And particularly, I guess, in the sense that if, if something is beyond their control, so that, that's, that's an external dependency, right? So is there a separate thinking, a thought process you have for things that are just outside of the team's control? Well, the first thing that I'm going to do is see whether or not there's some other things that we can do to either reduce the number of times things get blocked or reduce the duration they block for. So I had a group once who found a lot of the things that were blocking in their system were blocking because they'd have to reach out and make a request to a, a different IT group in the organization who stood up servers. And they said, you know, that typically takes that team about two weeks to do. Uh, mm. So what we said is, okay, how about in a weekly review of the backlog, we walk about two weeks ahead of us through that backlog and see whether there's anything there that should trigger a request to IT so that once that's ready for us to pull in, that infrastructure is actually there and we don't have to wait for it. So okay. I'm not necessarily going to change how they handle blockers, but there are a few situations I'm going to treat really differently. And the main one is every once in a while, I'll run into a team who is pretty exclusively doing customer escalation work. And so they bring things into, into their analysis or their investigation or their research step, and they find they need information from the customer, right? They need a log mm -hmm. that they didn't get, or there's some configuration item they don't quite understand and they need to get some clarification. They're still not able to reproduce the issue. So they reach out back to the customer. Okay. And I had a group that was, this was a hundred percent of their work. Any guesses on how long it takes a customer to get back to us when we reach out to them? Yeah. Yeah. Whenever they deem it's important to them. So they would have things that would block for uh, a day. They would also have things that would block for a week. Um, and so in wow. that particular case, they had a, a the, the status field. It was called need more needs more information. And so we actually created a need more information swim lane. And we created some policies around that swim lane. So if something was blocked for that reason, it moved down into the needs more information swim lane. And it sat there until the information came back. And the policy was once we got the information we needed, it needed a slot to come back into the main work lane, 
Um, so there had to be a, a whip limit for it to return. And, but it got first priority to come back. So instead of pulling something okay. off the backlog, the needs more information would be the next thing pulled in as soon as there was availability. And we also talked about any policies about how long could something sit in needs more information. If it had mm -hmm. sat there for a month and a half, was that okay? Or did that basically just need to get put into the, we think this thing is no longer important to our customer. If it comes back again, it'll be a new ticket. Makes sense. I mean, you had a pretty interesting comical way that one of your teams kind of uh, were indicating how long something sat in a in, in a unknown state, right? Or in this waiting state. What was that? There was a team once that instead of using like turning a card red or putting a red, if you had a physical board, a lot of teams would put red stickies on top of anything that was blocked. And this team would actually take um, a bit of a banana peel and put it on blocked <laughs> items. So they could literally watch the banana peel age in front of their eyes. Well, that, you know, that's, you could, you could take a picture of that or you could, you could, you know, that's a way to harass somebody you're waiting for information. Look, the banana is like black, dude. <laughs> when am I going to get my stuff? It's about to fall <laughs> off our board. <laughs> <laughs> and the team, the team is really revolting because it's, because it's, it's uh, fruit fly season now. <laughs> please, please help us. <laughs> that's great. Um, is there any approach that, that, that you would think about for blocked items that you just don't like? Is there something that, that, that teams have had that just there's a counterexample that you say, don't do this? I do not like a blocked column. Okay. And it's because you lose the state. And one of the things that I want to know is where are we blocking most often and why? And so if I put everything in a blocked column, A, you can have things moving backwards on a board, which is weird. Um, and B, you lose that. Do we get blocked mostly in our planning step or do we get blocked mostly in our build step? Um, and I'm a big fan of actually analyzing your blockers. Okay. So take like all your blockers from last month. And this means that when you put something that's blocked, you need to put in why it got blocked. Um, and then you spend some time, you use like a mural board or a mirror board nowadays when you're online, you bring all of these in and you start clustering together based on cause. And then you look for ways to either reduce their occurrence or reduce their duration um, by putting other practices in place. Cool. So, you know, one of the things you probably want to do with that when you're looking at is, is are we having these things occur in the same place all the time? That's right. Right. You know, and so that, I mean, that can be a, a good indicator for somebody is in terms of why things are getting blocked. Maybe you, you focus on that given the data that you collect um, and analyze why that continues to occur at the same spot. Right. That's and, exactly and, you know, right. Even if you don't, even if you can't reduce why they occur in the same spot, at least you're, you try and reduce the duration that they sit. Right. Some, some way to do that. That's correct. I mean, the best world is you get rid of the, that from blocking, right? Like my team that started going through its backlog and putting its request in early. So that was ready when they got there. Um, mm -hmm. So taking steps that you can to kind of completely eliminate it is awesome. If you can't then reduce their frequency or reduce their duration or reduce a bit of both of those. Okay. Makes sense. Um, so let's move on to, to, you know, now that you've got the mechanics there, you, you're going to be running this thing. Um, 
And let's talk about some of the things you you deal with when you're running on a regular or daily basis. So, there's a daily stand-up in Kanban, it's not like Scrum, right? It's a little different? That's right. It is a little different. And in fact, the latest release of the Scrum Guide has moved um, even the Scrum Daily to be a little bit more, I think, flow-focused, which I think is really awesome. So in Scrum, historically, we've asked the three questions. Uh, what did I do today? What did I do yesterday? What am I going to do today? And what uh, impediments or blockers are in my way? Um, in Kanban, we're not going to ask the three questions. We're not focused on what individuals on the team are doing. We're very, very focused on our flow. So we're going to start by looking at the done column and moving our way from the end of the board to the front of the board. And at each stage, we're going to stop and we're going to talk about anything that's blocked, uh, anything that isn't moving the way it should. And here's where knowing things like the cycle time data for the whole system or your SLA that you have. And also people will often start to collect cycle time data by stage. So you know that on average things spend five days in this stage. You are doing your daily and you look at something and you say, hmm, it's day six. Eh, eh close enough, right? Day mm-hmm. 10. <laughs> yeah, then, then, then it's, something's wrong. Why, right. why is this still here in day 10? What's going on? Uh, and then people will talk about any other items or issues that they want to bring up in that stage. And we'll talk about those in each of the stages until we get up to our backlog. That makes sense. I mean, I like the idea, of, the visual idea of that of working your way backwards to see what things are doing. I mean, one of the things, um, it, I remember in the first episode we talked about um, – was this idea of not starving the system, meaning that we're always wanting to have workflow into the system. Um, what, what are some of the ways that, 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 that polished Kanban execution kind of accomplishes that? What, you know, how do you replenish that queue of work that's, that's, it, that's inbound? I mean, certainly with the expedite lane, you probably have, <laughs> there's no shortage of that. But for, for standard stuff, right, when, when the stakeholders are providing that stuff, what are some ways to continue to make sure that the stuff is healthy? Well, uh, A, if there is no absolute end to the expedite lane, we might be sitting down and having a conversation if your policy isn't stringent enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Are you really expediting all of this? Do you really need to expedite all of this? Can some of this wait? Um, so I'm always looking for those opportunities anytime I talk to people about their Kanban systems. But, you know, the most common thing I see people using is that they have um, uh, someone who orders that input queue or that backlog of work. Uh, in Kanban, the generic term we would use for that is a queue manager. Um, okay. So if the team has, say, an engineering manager who's doing that today, I dub the a queue manager, continue on with your work. Um, okay. If the team already, ha- maybe the organization has some scrum in it, and so there's already a person doing this and they're called a product owner, I'm going to continue to call them a product owner. They're going to continue to do that job. Gotcha. And that would make sense. I mean, it- in the case where there's not a dedicated role, do you, do you advocate having sort of a round robin idea where someone, you know, maybe monthly you rotate that out and somebody gets gets to play that role, or is that something that's just up to the team's comfort level? Like everything in Kanban, I'm going to ask the team what they do today, and we're going to model that. And so, ah, if okay. the team has one person who's doing it today, we're going to keep doing that. If they have some other forum, we're going to keep doing that. If it's a total free for all. <laughs> 
then that's probably not working well for anybody. And we're going to talk about how to solve that. Um, and my first thing would probably be to look for a queue manager to do it. But in some organizations, there are other approaches. So some organizations will hold uh, a regular uh, queue replenishment meeting. So on some hmm, okay. rhythm, like once a week or twice a month, they'll get together and they'll look at the backlog of potential things for this Kanban system and identify what's the next set of things that they want that team doing over that one week or two week period. Uh, so it's a regular rhythm that happens and you're basically putting enough into their input queue until the next queue replenishment meeting. Gotcha. So that makes that makes perfect sense, right? That 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 you if you have an individual role that's playing that role and they are able to manage that, that's a good way of doing it. If you need to have some more eyeballs on the problem, you bring other folks into a meeting context like that. You know, not that everybody wants to have more meetings in their calendar, but you know, particularly in the Zoom world these days or team world these days. But I think that makes sense. Yeah. And then and every yeah. once in a blue moon, you'll run around kind of a, a round robin selection where there's like two or three people who have a stake in the system. So if my two Joes didn't do this, but they could have, right? It'd be like, all right, you pick one, you pick one, you pick one, you pick one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, less, the, the more, the more participation there, I think the better in terms of having people at least have insight into what's, what's being planned. So let's switch gears a little bit, talk about the, you know, more steady state and looking at looking into the box and optimization kind of stuff, right? You're humming along, your team thinks it's awesome. Everything's going really well, but you know, you still want to make sure that you continue to focus on making things better not only for, for the team and using the system, but also for the business, right? So the, the notion, the Japanese knows the word is kaizen, right? You change for the good. So how about we talk a little bit about how to optimize the system for both of those things? And, and what are your sort of key swing thoughts for that yeah. idea? You know, here in, in a perfect Kanban world, the teams would just spontaneously have conversations about opportunities and identify possible changes for the future. Um, but I find a lot of times if teams don't have a little bit more structure, at least to start, they often will just start conboning and then keep going and basically be the same team six months from now they are today. And just like any agile methodology, I really want the teams learning, growing and experimenting. Kanban has this wonderful idea of shallow to deep Kanban. Uh, David Anderson talks about this a lot, where shallow Kanban is just your Kanban board. It's the visualization of the work and nothing else. And so things like adding your policies and adding your whip limits get you into more deep Kanban. And then at the deepest Kanban, we're really talking about uh, a learning experimental Kanban system where you're gathering data, you're looking at the data, you're making a hypothesis, you try an experiment, you run the experiment, and you look at the results of that experiment and then adjust. You might pivot, you might try something a little different, you might keep that and move on to something else. So for a lot of teams, we'll basically talk about, I, I want some regular approach to learning and growing and improving. Um, I've had teams where they say, well, we're going to hold a... Um, a two-week retrospective, just like the scrum teams around us that we see, we think that will work for us. 
Um, I've had some teams who say, we will hold a retrospective if we haven't identified a change and implemented that experiment in the two weeks leading up to that time frame. So if something gotcha. spontaneously occurs, then we'll be working on that. We don't need that reminder to have that retrospective because we're already trying something out. Uh, and then sometimes I have teams who will actually basically do, we are always experimenting. So their rhythm is we run an experiment, we make a hypothesis, we, we say we need this long to collect the data. Um, and as soon as that experiment is done, they'll start their next experiment. Okay. So there's lots of ways to do this. The real key is making sure that the team has agreed upon some way to learn. Um, and I do find that often just saying, well, it'll spontaneously happen doesn't happen. <laughs> so, you know, that team who said, well, we think we're going to be spontaneous, but if we haven't had something we're going to try in two weeks, we have a backstop of a reminder, at least something like that, I think is helpful. Um, and the last thing that I see, especially in really peer-heavy Kanban organizations, organizations that are using a lot of Kanban and that's their sole approach generally, uh, mm -hmm. is they'll put in place a monthly operations review. And this will include all of the Kanban teams in the organization, as well as all of the leaders and all of the stakeholders and consumers of these Kanban systems uh, to talk about the business context and anything that's shifted in that over the past month, uh, talk about the team's performances and look at the metrics and the flow uh, and identify changes either organizationally or inside of the Kanban teams that they're going to be trialing out between now and next month's operations review. That makes sense. And through all this, I think there's there's an inherent um, idea of maturity Right in in these teams, where where um, clearly in the beginning um, there may be more structured stuff where people kind of force some rhythm, and then eventually this maybe there's a, a shift to more spontaneous where people begin to do their own. You know, how do we do? How we, how are we thinking about doing better on our own? And it just pops up more as a, as a groundswell. That make that team totally seems to me like that would make sense. And I think that's a real sign of maturity. Right? We have. Sure. We have gone past doing the motions of something, right? I see a lot of teams right. doing the motions of Kanban or the motions of Scrum, but they're not really doing the the inherent things that we want, like being ever growing, ever improving, and ever learning. And the more that we can just have that be a built-in part of the culture and we don't need the backstop of forcing functions, the better, the more mature that team is. That's a great sign. Sure. It's, it warms your heart. It does. It makes me very happy. <laughs> now, I will say so, I love Scrum-style retrospectives, too. So if people want yeah, to that's use another one. those, right, then yeah, I, exactly. I have no – that gives me no heartburn at all. Uh, it's just yeah. that, you know, if you can be experimenting uh, a couple times a week, your cadence allows you to do that. Why would I wait to experiment once every two weeks? You know, Absolutely. faster learning is always better. Well, you know, and I think when we talk about optimization and, and, you know, here at Constructs, we talk an awful lot, you know, from our CEO on down about, about making, you know, having decisions informed by data. So, you know, really is this whole environment is, is needs to be data driven. So the need for metrics is critical, right? So this notion of Kanban metrics and, and, 
You know, there are a bunch of different examples that are commonly in use with clients. And I know this is one of your favorite areas to talk about, right? So let's, let's, let's get into that. Let's talk about some of those things. All right. Let us do. All right. So I'll throw the first one out just to get her started. Cumulative flow diagramming. Boy, that sounds awesome. (laughs) Cumulative flow diagram. So what's that all about? So that's a way of understanding what your relationship is between um, lead time, cycle time, and WIP. So maybe we take a quick step back and introduce uh, a few terms here. Um, Perfect. The first term that we'll introduce is the concept of cycle time. And cycle time is the time that it takes from when we pull the work off of the backlog and, until we finish that work. So on an individual item, the clock starts the second it's pulled off the backlog and put into the first stage, and it ends when it's pulled from the last stage and put into the done queue. And understanding and looking at that cycle time data um, will help you start to understand if your system's predictable. Uh, a lot of people will actually look at average cycle time, but I find what you really want to look at is cycle time distribution. Okay. How often is your cycle time, say, 10 days versus 11 days versus 12 days versus 13 days versus 22 days? Because that will tell you whether or not this system is reasonably predictable or not. And sometimes the initial set of data that you get from a system shows you cycle time that's just kind of all over the map. There's no, there's no peak in it. There's no valleys in it. It just looks like a random distribution. And if you turn to the team and say, uh, it looks really unpredictable. Does it feel like that reflects your work? They'll like start laughing and tell you yes. <laughs> I believe it. Uh, and this may be because, you know, they've had a ton of whip in the system. And so putting the whip limits in place is actually going to really help them. And they'll start to get uh, better cycle time data. Um, but also the other thing we need to think about is if you have giant variation in the work sizes flowing through your system, uh, you're going to have issues having kind of a center of gravity around cycle time. So let's just for simplicity's sake, say there's a team who does lots and lots of stuff that's pretty small and a fair amount of stuff that's quite big. And if we plotted out the cycle time distribution of that team, you would probably see two peaks, one peak for the small stuff and one peak for the big stuff. But average would mean nothing to this team. Right. Uh, And so there I would want to do a couple things, right? Maybe we just separate that into a, a swim lane for the small stuff and a swim lane for the big stuff. And now I can get cycle time data across both of those swim lanes and it looks really nice and it's got an obvious peak and I can say, okay, 85% of the time on the small stuff, it's five days and 85% of the time on the big stuff, it's 22 days. Okay. Um, Or Uh I'm going to want to try and do some sizing somewhere, right? I might say, if you're going to bring something in from the product backlog, we're going to t-shirt size that. And we're going to make sure that we only bring in things that are like medium or less so that the size is more consistent and normal. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that would make sense too, is, is sizing or reestimating to, as you enter that. I mean, I think Scrum suffers from the same thing when you have um, stories that have, you know, r- radically different 
sizing and, and and you have management trying to understand what velocity means on different teams and you know that 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 indication that you have here of a bimodal distribution that would certainly be an area where you say, well, look, this team is consuming tiny little things, and so yeah, of course their velocity is going to look different than a team that has these monstrous things that enter the end, of the, the other end of the queue, right? So yeah, I mean, when I tell talk to leadership about velocity, I tell them you should worry more about velocity stability than what right. the peer number is. Variations, right? right. Variation exactly. matters more. This team doing sixty-five points a sprint, this team doing forty-five points a sprint may mean absolutely nothing in comparison comparing that two teams right <laughs> completely um, so, so yeah go ahead so so looking at the cycle time and then we're going to get into something that i think is a little beer and philosophy e in the kanban Ooh, community good. <laughs> okay <laughs> and, i like the beer part yeah. i like the beer part <laughs> i figured you would <laughs> yes uh, so what I mean by beer and philosophy is different people will have different perspectives and um, people in each camp are unlikely to change the other people's minds. And so we might go out and have beer or wine or soda or water. We'll debate philosophy. And, and I think both people will have valid points, but both people are going to think they're right. <laughs> and, Gee, where have I seen that before? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and that is, does such a thing as lead time performance exist? And what lead time means is it's cycle time plus wait time in queue. Okay. So it's from the time somebody requests the item until it's actually delivered. And some people in the Kanban community will say there is no such thing as lead time performance. It is not a committed item at all until we start the work. It is just an idea, a possibility. We're just going to measure cycle time performance. Um, I think that it is not uh, always a good thing to measure lead time performance, but I've certainly been in organizations where we also measure cycle time and lead time performance. And that doesn't give me any heartburn at all. So when I think it will be useful and helpful to the team and to the stakeholders, we will gather both. Okay. I mean, I guess the, one of the things that, that, that I think about when I think about all this stuff is that, you know, teams don't necessarily want to track this stuff with some weird, Excel spreadsheet or a clipboard or something. They, they, they certainly want tool support for this stuff. Is there tool support for these kinds of metrics? Do, do, do generally do the tools support this kind of gathering? Yeah, almost every tool will give you that cumulative flow diagram. So in the cumulative flow diagram, you'll see your cycle time because you'll see the thickness of the bands in terms of um, how long things are in each of those stages. So you'll actually start to see flow there. Um, and scrum teams, it's actually pretty interesting to have a scrum team look at a cumulative flow diagram for their sprint. And sometimes hmm. you'll actually see scrum teams who have, um, they start a sprint and their columns, maybe we just keep it simple and say there's to do and process and done. And so you see a whole chunk of the to do stuff moving into in process, right? Like maybe 60% moves into in process in the first day or two of the sprint and then nothing goes into done until like the second to last day of the sprint. And so you see these long flat spots, right? And that tells you that team isn't incrementally delivering value. It's probably working on too many different items in parallel versus 
more focused on getting a smaller number of things across the finish line more quickly. Um, so cumulative flow diagrams are actually useful there. And then Kanban teams, what I'll have them look at it is people usually have a hard time buying what I'm selling in terms of if you reduce your whip limits, you will see improved cycle time, right? Your cycle time will reduce, you'll be faster. And so having that team who say had 36 items, as they move their way down to being only to 12, uh, they will actually start to see that the, the cycle time reduces as the whip reduces. And so that visual representation, the cumulative flow diagram will be really helpful in getting them to, to say, hey, yeah, this is right. And then they'll, they can use the cumulative flow diagram to start moving the needle closer and closer to, to say six um, whip limits mm -hmm. across their mm -hmm. whole board and, and see at a certain point, you may crank those numbers down uh, to the point that the engine starts to stall and sputter, but but you'll see that and you'll feel that and it'll be like, okay, that was the last turn down that made any sense. Too far. Too far. Too, too turn far. it turn right. it one niche back up. Uh, and so in the cumulative flow diagram, you're looking for things like smooth flow. You're looking for where do we have maybe long flat spots? Where do we have thick cycle times because there's a lot of whip in the system at that point? That's the kind of stuff. And pretty much every tool, I think. I'm sure somebody out there in the ecosystem will tell me some tool that doesn't have it, but most of them will give you cumulative flow diagrams. Uh, and most of them will give you average cycle time. Cycle time distribution, not as easy to get out of the tools. Okay. Some tools have it. Uh, a lot of tools who are more focused on Kanban versus tools that maybe started with Scrum and then added support for Kanban will have it. Um, but the tools that were more scrum focused to start with are often don't have good support there. Interesting. I, I think about this, you know, from the stakeholders perspective or, or from, you know, those folks peering into the box. I mean, th this, these tools are got to help with the idea of forecasting, right? I mean, the, the answer that the team that, that the stakeholders typically are looking for is when am I going to get this? When is it going to be done? So anything that helps the team kind of crystallize that and be able to do some forecasting, you know, even if it's a range of, of, of likely things, it's probably a good idea, right? Yeah. And, and again, some of the more Kanban focused communities will allow you to do some forecasting, right? Given this backlog of work. Uh, and this team's kind of throughput of um, stories on a on a weekly basis. Here's our projection for when it'll be done. Um, some teams aren't great, and you need to use a plugin. So, for example, if you had Jira, their data here for forecasting for Kanban isn't great, but you could use, say, Actionable Agile as a plugin to Jira to get some good forecasting data. Interesting. Cool. All right, um, let's hit another one since we're on the, the metrics topic. Um, and this is a cute little term, Muda. Um, sounds like the name of our producer's dog, but um, it's actually a Japanese word that means futility, uselessness, and wastefulness. Like Kind of like talking politics on Facebook. You know, your beard and philosophy comment is certainly relevant here. So, you know, we talked about the origin of that in the Toyota production system in the first episode, and the word comes from there. So... Um, you know, talk about that in the context of Kanban system. What does that mean um, to you in terms of like the, the uselessness or things that are, you know, maybe even it's like, I guess it's like 
items that get started, but they just sit or they disappear or they hang and they never get done. And, you know, what's that all about in terms of a Kanban system? It sounds like a, a prime violation. It, yeah, it kind of is. I mean, the, the worst thing here would be, say, a Kanban system where we keep starting things, but uh, maybe we keep getting derailed onto something more important. And so it makes it halfway or three quarters of the way through the board and then gets abandoned, right? I mean, that's, that is just waste at the extreme. I, I don't see that a lot of places. Um, every once in a while, I've been in an organization where they kind of are starting to suffer from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, you know, Steve McCall has been talking for years about if only we could make waste in software as visible as, you know, some of the waste in the manufacturing world, people would be aghast. Um, right. Pile of stuff at the end of the assembly line. Oh, that's leftover part. Not sure why you have it left over, but it's there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I had a team once who was actually suffering from this a fair amount. And so we, we, introduced the idea of like a little garbage can. So anything that made it partly through, but didn't get done. Cause once, I mean, if it's on your backlog and you don't start it, I'm not worried about it. Right. Because you haven't invested right. a lot in it, but once you've right. taken it and you've analyzed or planned it and implemented, coded it, tested it, all of that. Now you're putting a lot of effort into this. So they actually started to take anything that got, uh, the kibox partway through the system would get a little special tag on it. And it was the equivalent of putting it in a garbage can. And then on a weekly basis, they would report what percentage of their items had been canned. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> Cause it made it really visible to people. Sure. And I think that's the whole point of all of this, right? Is, is that visualization? It's, it's. I think all of us see things faster than we ha- we we can process things necessarily. If you make it visible, I mean, you really at the end of the day, what you're really trying to get at in this is that you you want to look at things that were done that just didn't add value. That's right. Right. I mean, that, that's 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 really what what the summary judgment would be on that. So there's cool. you know there's the looking at some of the the software waste, right? Excessive multitasking. Well, our WIP limits are really meant to help us do that. Uh, extra features. Well, you know, ruthless prioritization, be it Scrum or be it Kanban, I think is a really critical asset of anybody who's managing a queue. Um, you know, partially done work, something that's you know partially done but not all done, and it's in that kind of semi-complete state for long periods of time, we're really moving in the Agile community wanting to say, what's the smallest piece of value that we could get that would be meaningful to either release to somebody or to show to somebody to get feedback? And so all of those thoughts, whether it's Scrum or Kanban, are the kind of thinking that I want people to bring to their systems. Makes sense. So one more we'll hit. I think we got time for one more. I think, and that and and that's an obvious one we should mention um, is of course quality metrics, right? And that and that's sort of almost independent of a Kanban thing. But you know, it's it's probably something that the teams or the organizations already using, regardless of whether they have a system in play or not. And those are kind of the typical things you might expect in quality metrics, right? Like you know, that's, toss them out. That's right. Well, the first thing I always say to people is. Uh, you want to make sure that you don't just focus on throughput and not think about quality. Right. Because that is going to be super problematic. Uh, years ago, Steve, I, and several other people from Constructs went to um, a NASA conference, and they were talking about 
what had happened. They just, they'd been chartered. They said they'd been chartered to be uh, better, faster, and cheaper. And they'd put in place metrics for faster and cheaper, but not better. <laughs> and they said, that's one of the reasons that we were having all the issues they were having. This was the time when all the Mars landers were having issues and things had been going right. on. So yeah, you always want to make sure that you have balancing metrics. <laughs> so throughput, and usually people are looking at defect metrics. So we're looking at defects by priority and severity or doing a weighted rate of that. We're looking at the trending data. Uh, a really interesting thing that I think that people should be looking at is defects by stage. Uh, where were they caught? Where were they injected? Where were they caught? Should they have been caught earlier? Uh, you can do that by sampling. You don't necessarily have to collect that data every day all the time. But a really interesting exercise is on some regular rhythm, go take a sample set out of your database and say, where did we inject this defect? Where did we find this defect? And where could we have found this defect? All right. Um, Eric Simmons has a wonderful example of a time he was working with a group. And he kind of thought that a lot of the things that were sneaking through and being found in system testing should have been found in unit testing, but weren't. And uh, the technical lead on that team was like, no, 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 that can't possibly be right. And Eric said, well, why don't you take a random sample out of our system and go do the analysis on it? And about, you know, three days later, the, the lead came back and said, you're right, we got to work on better unit testing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it shines the spotlight without being, without being accusatory, I suppose, yep. right? Someone goes and looks at the data and sees it. I mean, one of our other colleagues, actually a number of our colleagues here at Constructs, um, bang the rework drum all the time, right? And if you if you are... If you're happy with your throughput, but stuff is getting to the customer and it's broken, um, you know, it's going to come back. And so, you know, the, the net throughput you had there is going to be affected by those customer defects that get reported. So you really do want to spend some time and energy making sure quality is knitted in as opposed to having something where you're going to have to go back and open up something and do it again. Yep. Because there's, there's nothing, you know, in this day and age with uh, all the work from home stuff everybody's doing, we're all trying to be more efficient and trying to, to be as connected as we can. But if you're spending a lot of wasted energy on stuff that could have been taken care of, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a huge loss in productivity that, that most organizations would never be able to afford. So it's, it's, a hidden, it's a hidden thing that you can recover if you can think about it in that context. Steve McConnell said years ago that all good software life cycles put defect detection activities as close as possible to defect injection activities. Uh, and I think, you know, Agile done well has a wonderful opportunity for us to have lots and lots of feedback loops to find things earlier and sooner. Um, but we really have to build those in and take advantage of those. So, yeah, I think, you know, laser focus on that, constantly seeking to improve, uh, constantly gathering some, you know, some metrics about both defects and maybe there's some things about uh, complexity in the code and correlating those. You can often really find areas for targeted refactoring that are going to really buy down, say, whole clusters of defects that are typically cropping up because that area is brittle, hard to maintain, uh, or you made some design trade-offs that made sense when you made them three years ago, but now in hindsight, you would never have done that again. So I do think stepping back and saying, 
you know, let's not just focus on throughput, but focus on that balance of throughput and quality is going to give you absolutely by far the best flow. Totally, totally agree. So let's um, let's draw the line on all this for today and do a little summary. Um, so summarize those approaches. Maybe summarize what do you recommend for our listeners who are who are jumping into the Kanban pool these days? Give me, give it give us some key thoughts. Kiss. Yes. <laughs> Start simply. So every once in a while, I'll have somebody come and show me their Kanban board design, and I'll have you know, three swim lanes and, uh, eight stages. And I'm like, Whoa, this is really complicated. So when I'm working with teams to set up the initial board for the system, you know, we're usually looking at three to five stages, one or two swim lanes. If you're not sure if you need a stage, you should probably start by having it be exit criteria, not its own stage. If you're not sure mm -hmm. you need a swim lane, don't put one in. If you're not sure that you need a class of service, don't start with a class of service. So start with really a simple board design uh, with, you know, reasonable whip limits and then run the system for a while, collect data, retrospective and improve. Perfect. I mean, I, th I think that's a great way of doing it, just collecting the data and making, making it visible to people. And uh, I think we're going to leave it there. What do you think? Sounds good. Awesome. Um, so I think that's the end of our time today. Thanks for taking the time to talk through this stuff and talk through the mechanics of the system with me. I think this was, this was great. It's a good um, second podcast after the first one when we talked about the counterexamples. Here we talk about the positive notion of, of getting so, things. So I think there's maybe one more in the bucket. We have one more session planned, and I think I'm really excited to have you back in the future to talk in detail about Kanban at different levels of abstraction. That's the, that's the teaser for the next one, right, the advanced session? That's right, and we'll also talk about one of my my favorite things in the whole world to do with Kanban, which is Kanban program um, management. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, ma'am. I appreciate your time and energy. You're clearly passionate about this, and we're looking forward to the next time. Wonderful. It's been a joy to be here. Always love to chat about Kanban. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Be sure to tune in again for another in, uh, episode of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host. Liz Ostaszewski has been our audio engineer. And I, I'm told that we have a European guest producer today, uh, a gentleman by the name of Devoni Musgrave. It's nice to have you here, Devoni. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever you normally find us. As I mentioned earlier, the nexus of this Kanban series came from you, our listeners, so it does indeed work. We do listen to you. If you have ideas for a future podcast or comments on this one, or you'd like to talk to one of our practitioners about this or other topics, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, keep staying safe out there, everybody, and have a great next sprint.